Well, good evening, church. Please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. The title of the sermon is The Dumbness of Doubting God. And I could not think of anything else to call this after studying this text. The Dumbness of Doubting God. And so once you're at Genesis chapter 16, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So starting at verse 1, it says, Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I could build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband. Uh, gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I am running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy, for she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me? That is why the well is called Ber Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we just come before you and we ask you to be with us and to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, God, that uh, there's a lot of dumbness in this passage, God. And even in our own lives, God, sometimes we mimic the patterns we see here, maybe not with the same sins, but definitely the same patterns. And so I pray that you show us much here of what not to do. And that, Lord, still in all of it, you show us to to marvel at your grace. Lord, that we would be open to any correction that you give us, Lord, and that uh, we would just be always ready to live on point for you faithfully. I pray you would remove me as much as possible from this, God, so that I don't mess your word up. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that your people will be made more like you, Jesus. The lost will hear your word and be saved, and that in everything you be glorified. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray all of this. Amen. Please have a seat. So as the weather gets colder and you're driving around, you're going to notice that road conditions progressively get more hazardous. Rain, fog, and ice cause all sorts of problems when you're driving. 
Now, as you try to navigate through these stormy conditions, you only have one visual point of reference through which you could see your front windshield, right? That's pretty much it. Then, of course, your, your, rear, your rear view mirror, but you're going forward. Okay, so it's your, your front windshield. Well, I'm sure you guys have been driving long enough to know that the cold will cause moisture in, will cause moisture on the outside to fog up your windshield. And then your body heat on the inside of the car will cause it to fog up on the inside. Okay? Well, when that happens and your windshield fogs up on the inside and the outside, your vision becomes so cloudy that you cannot safely continue. Fortunately, though, automobile manufacturers have put windshield wipers on the outside and defrosters on the inside. That way, it could remove the cloudy vision and you could keep driving through hazardous conditions. But what would happen if, like a fool, you turned off the wipers and turned off the defroster and then it all fogged up and you kept on driving? There would be problems, right? I'm sure you can imagine the problems that would come. You would likely drive off the road damaging the car. Or you might crash into someone or something leading to injury. Now, the sad thing would be in such a case it was completely avoidable. You just had to keep the wipers and the defroster on. Where am I going with this? It's an analogy to the Christian life. In our Christian lives, the only thing that keeps our metaphorical windshield visible is biblical faith. Biblical faith is the windshield wipers. It is the defroster. And when our faith is functioning like it should, and we're trusting God and his word, we can see the hazards ahead of us for what they are, and we can navigate properly. But when you set aside your faith, and when you set aside your trust in God, now it's like you're living your life as if you're driving through a winter storm with your wipers and defrosters off. It will lead to problems. And that is what our text is going to show us tonight. So the point of the text for note takers is this. Faith clouded by doubt always causes problems. That is what this is going to show us. Your faith, when it is clouded by doubt, will always cause problems. Why? Well, our text gives you three reasons why your doubt will always cause problems. Reason number one, you make dumb plans. Okay? That's why I call this the dumbness of doubting God. Reason one, you will make dumb plans. Reason two, your dumb plans are going to cause a lot of problems. And then reason three, sometimes it gets so bad that only divine intervention could get you out of this. Okay, so doubt of God will cause us to make dumb plans, which will lead to many problems. And sometimes then only divine intervention is going to get you out. And that's what we're going to see tonight. So as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis, we now come to probably one of the best examples of what happens when we let our faith get clouded with doubt. And honestly, I'm just going to be up front with you guys. I wanted to preach this chapter last time when I was preaching chapter 15. I wanted to do 15 and 16 together. Now, of course, I only deceived myself thinking that I could possibly do that. Um, but truly, I wanted to for one key reason. These two chapters form a perfect foil for each other. Remember what we saw in chapter 15. Abram, or God tells Abram, I'm your shield and your reward will be great. And then Abram questions God. He says, how will my reward be great? I've got no children. God tells him, a son from your own body will be your heir, not, not your, your household servant that, that you picked. Go outside, look at the stars. Can you count them? No. So too will all your descendants be. They'll be beyond your ability to count. And so God, Abraham, or Abram took God's word to heart. He listened and he believed. 
In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, gave us one of the most important sentences in the entire Bible. It said, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, a very important passage. In other words, when someone believes God, meaning they trust God and his promises, God gives them the credit of perfect righteousness. How does God do this? He does this through Jesus Christ. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, earned perfect righteousness for those who lived before his time and we who lived after his time. And when you believe on the Lord, when you believe the gospel, you get the credit of Jesus's righteousness. So we go back 4,000 years ago, Abram was filled with faith. He believed it was credited to him as righteousness. And so then in excitement, he asks God, okay, great, how shall I know? And God then told him, take some animals, sacrifice them, make a path, split them in half, make a path that we could walk between. You want to know how you could trust my word? I'm going to make a covenant with you. Now, normally the way this ritual would work is both parties would walk in between the pathway that's made by these animals. And what they're saying is if either one of us fails to uphold our end of the promise, may we be obliterated and destroyed like these animals. Well, before Abram could walk through them, God made him fall into a deep sleep. And then he put him in a visionary state where Abram could see that God alone went through the path of the animals. And what God was telling Abram is that this entirely is on me. This is not on you. It depends on me, not you. If I, the God of the universe, fail to keep this promise that I have made you, then may I be obliterated like these animals. That's what the Lord was saying. Now, of course, you're going to be like, it's impossible for God to be destroyed. Yes, that's the point. In the same way it's impossible for God to be destroyed, it's impossible for God not to keep a promise. It's impossible for God to lie, as the author of Hebrews will tell us. So, Abram believed all of this. Chapter 15 shows us Abram when he has great faith. It seems unshakable. So again, why would I want to contrast that with chapter 16? Why would I want to, to preach them together? It's because they both show us that God keeps his promises, and therefore, because of that, we should trust him. But they give us an example of what happens when we trust him and what happens when we don't. God's going to keep his promise regardless, okay? But what happens when we trust him? What happens when we don't? In chapter 15, we saw what happens when you trust God. God reassured Abram's faith. Abram believed God, he was declared righteous, and then God made this visible covenant with him to show that it all depends on me. I will reassure your faith. I will strengthen your faith, Abram, because you're trusting me. But then chapter 16 shows us just the opposite. What happens when a little while later, your faith ends up clouded by doubt? What happens is you sin, and many problems end up following. Now, thankfully, our massive mess-ups do not jeopardize God's promises because his promises rest exclusively on him. But with these two extremes side by side, it does show us for sure that he keeps his promises and we're way better off when we trust him rather than doubting him. So with that said, now let's look at, I guess, the bad example. What happens when you don't trust? Let's look at chapter 16. Faith clouded by doubt always causes problems. And the first thing we see when your faith is clouded by doubt is you make dumb plans. We will see this in verses one through three. Verse one is gonna just give us the setting. It'll keep it simple. It sets up the scene. So let's take a look. It says, Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. 
Now, keep in mind, this is the first thing Moses says after God gives us great promise in chapter 15. What that lets us know is we are supposed to take these together. God made the promise. The promise was offspring. But now this chapter is telling us God hasn't given them the offspring yet. That's the situation. Abram's wife has not borne any children for him. She's barren. Now, if that's all the text said, maybe there would be no hint that something dumb was about to happen. But that's not all the text says, is it? It also tells us that Sarai, quote, owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now, why is he telling us that? It's because, and by the way, Hagar was undoubtedly, how did, like, where did she come from? It's like she appears out of nowhere here. Remember, in chapter 12, he went down into Egypt, and he left Egypt with a bunch of plunder that Pharaoh gave him. Hagar came from that. See, chapter 12 was one of Abram's lowest moments. He doubted God's promise. What did he do? A famine comes, he flees God's holy land because he's not believing the promise. He goes to Egypt, he lies about his wife and says, this is my sister. So then Pharaoh has the hots for her, takes her into his harem and makes her his wife, which makes her an adulteress. All because Abram was being a coward. And even after that, Abram was not willing to do what's right. And so what happened? God intervenes. God intervenes because God is going to keep his promise even when the one who he made the promise to is a fool. I'm thankful that God keeps his promises even to fools like us. So God strikes Pharaoh with plagues, lets him know that Sarai is Abram's wife. And then Pharaoh's kind of mad at Abram, like, why didn't you tell me? And so he asks him to leave, but he gives him a bunch of goods, all sorts of riches. And with that came this slave, Hagar. So Afterwards, chapters 13, 14, 15, Abram clearly repented of this huge episode of sin, and he's been hitting home runs. 13 was a home run of faith. Chapter 14 was a home run of faith. Chapter 15 was a grand slam of faith. But that sin in chapter 12 introduced the means for future sin. Taking this female slave opened the door for a future sin. If Abram and his wife end up in a situation where their faith is now clouded with doubt concerning offspring, the door is now open for a dumb plan because they took this slave. And that's exactly what we see in verse 2. Look at the first part of verse 2. Moses tells us this. He says, Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. So, Just stating it clearly, this is the dumb plan that I was talking about, okay? Sarai's getting desperate, and I'm pretty sure that Abram had told her, look, God promised me that that I'm going to have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, okay? But here they are. Even though Abram tells her this, they've got no kids, and Sarai's old. And so she looks at this young Egyptian slave, and she says, Abram, you can get her pregnant. That's how I'll build a family. Now, There's a couple things that need to be said here. Sarai was not inventing a new way to sin. You might not have seen this in the Bible before this, but she's not inventing a new way of sinning. This was actually the common custom of that whole part of the world. Uh, I actually read some translated versions of some ancient contracts of marriage back from Abram's time, and apparently in, in all these areas in the ancient Near East that... These marriage contracts would say that if the wife doesn't produce an heir or a child in a certain amount of years, the husband has the right to take a slave, a concubine, or even another wife and be able to to raise up offspring that way. So Sarai is just appealing to a practice that was normal in the time. But 
it was still a sinful practice, okay? Just because society does it doesn't mean that it's okay. This was sinful. But why is she thinking this is okay? Well, a couple reasons. One, we know that God has not given the law yet. This is 400 years before the law. And so the only way people knew right from wrong at this point was through their conscience. And the conscience is good, but there's a problem with the conscience. It could get seared. It could get hardened. Or it could get used to sin that is normal in your culture to where you see it all the time, and then you don't even think of it as a sin. This is especially easy when your surrounding culture practices as normal something that's evil. And just think about it. Let me give you an American example. I've always wondered how some famous American Christians 200 years ago, like Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield, guys like that, well, Whitfield was an American, but anyhow, these Christians 200 years ago wrote such amazing things about God, and yet at the exact same time, they owned slaves. Very different than the Hagar situation. It was, it was chattel slavery. These are people who knew the God of the Bible in and out, and yet they would separate families by selling husbands and wives off to different people just to make a profit. And they'd separate the kids. Like, how could they be so blind to the wickedness of that? The same way that Abram and Sarai were blind to the fact that it is not right to introduce surrogacy into a marriage. Marriage, according to Genesis chapter 2, going back to Moses, and what he says at the beginning is between one man and one woman, and the fruit that comes out of that is only supposed to come from the one man and one woman. In any type of surrogacy, whether it's ancient or modern, it adds a third womb or third woman into the mix. And think of what the gospel, what marriage pictures. Paul tells us that Genesis 2 is actually picturing the gospel. You have Christ and you have the church. Imagine bringing a third party into that. Okay, so how does the church bear children? Through Islam? That's kind of what you're painting. Okay, you end up messing up the picture of the gospel with that. Back then, it's how it happened. Today, it's how it happened. Now, back then, you had to add an extra thing to it that made it even worse. You had to add concubinage. At least today, you know, people don't add concubinage to the idea. But concubinage is where you actually have to sleep with the person. Okay, so they didn't have modern in vitro fertilization technology. Abram had to sleep with this woman, which brings a third woman into the marriage in a very carnal way. Okay, it's a carnal way here. So now you have these two sins together, but there's a third sin. And this is one that I think the society we live in right now and the current moment we, moment we live in right now makes it easier to spot this sin. But back then, they were blind to it. Hagar's a slave. She had no agency. She has no ability to say no. In that society, a master could kill a slave for minor disobedience. And later in the text, it is going to use language that shows us they are treating her like she is just a commodity, a piece of property with no agency. Her consent is not necessary. Now, I want you to think about this. In most professions today, if a superior sleeps with an inferior, even if there is consent, everybody still recognizes there is a power dynamic that makes the one who is the superior more responsible for the sin, right? That's why when this happens today, people get fired and they lose their license for whatever that field was, okay? And honestly, that's the right thing to do because there's an extra component added to the sin. And that's what's happening here. Hagar's got no say in this. They're just throwing her around like a piece of meat, okay? And so I bring all of that up to state that this is a really, really bad plan. 
even if it's something that Sarai saw in the surrounding culture and pretty much got used to it, it's still not a good plan, okay? And so this is where we would hope that Abram would step up as a husband and lead his wife in the Lord. When she came forward with this plan in an alternate universe, what I would hope is that Abram, the Abram whose faith was so strong in chapter 15 that it would still be just as strong in 16. That Abram would say, baby, because you know that's how they talked back then. He'd be like, baby, this is a bad plan. God told me that he would fulfill the promise. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We just have to trust his timing. But that's not what Abram says. Abram says, okay. Look, look at the last part of verse 2. Moses writes, and Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Now, we don't know why he agreed. We could speculate. Was the thought of a younger woman appealing to him? Was the fact that his wife was apparently into it, did it make it irresistible to him? Possibly. That might be what's going on. But maybe it wasn't that. Maybe Abram's just a weak husband. And rather than hear his wife nag, he'd rather go along to get along. And we see a lot of that these days, right? And so I bring these two options up, either pure perversion or go along to get along, because both these options could destroy a marriage. A man that's willing to sleep with another woman can destroy a marriage. And a wife that encourages it is just as bad as the husband that executes it, okay? And likewise, okay, obviously that's going to destroy marriage, but likewise, a man that surrenders God's given role to him as the head of the house, that man invites all sorts of disharmony into the relationship. God is not going to bless things when they're done in a backward way. There's going to be consequences. And I've seen this play out in counseling and all sorts of things. One consequence is the woman that railroads over her husband eventually has no respect for him because he's a pushover. And the first time a, a strong man shows interest in her, she runs off with him and then gets really angry that she can't control him, you know, because apparently she fell in love with that idol. That's one way this goes down. Another way it goes down is the, the pushover gets tired of being pushed over, gets tired of being stomped on. First time he finds a nicer woman that has interest, he takes the bait. Either way, going along to get along, okay, or the deviancy part, both of those can destroy the marriage. We don't know what's at play here, but what I will say, I'm assuming he's, it's more the go along to get along. And so the dynamic that is present, and there's reason for that. As we read on, there's just things that show he's more of like a yes, dear. You know, that, that's just where he's at in his marriage right now. And so the dynamic that's present with these two this is not a good dynamic for marriage. These guys need biblical counseling. They really do, okay? And, uh, and what we're going to see right now is this is a similar dynamic between what we saw with Adam and Eve. When it says, quote, Abram agreed to what Sarai said, in the Hebrew, it literally says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. This is identical to what God says to Adam when he confronts him in Genesis 3.17. He says, because you listen to the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground because of you. Okay? In Hebrew, the word listen is shema, and the word voice is kol, and both are in each of these verses. Moses is intentionally trying to get us to think of Adam and Eve. Okay? Eve comes up with a bad plan. Adam listened to the voice of Eve. Sarai comes up with a bad plan. Abram listens to the voice of Sarai. 
Now, verse 3 is going to make this even clearer. Let's take a look, a, a look at the first part of it. It says, So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. Now, notice how it says Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband. Keep those words in mind. Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband exact same words. And I looked it up and compared them side by side, exact same words in both verses. Okay. You have vatika for to take, she took. Okay. It's not just to take, it's she took, vatika, and uh, vatitain, and she gave. Okay. This is significant. Moses is presenting Abram as being just like Adam. And think about that for a moment. I explained multiple sermons ago how in Abram, God is showing that he is starting to reverse the curse of Adam. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the word curse in Hebrew appears five times. And then in the first three verses of Abram, the calling of Abram in chapter 12, God uses the word bless five times. He is undoing what Adam broke. Starting with Abram, God is going to fix what Adam broke. But then you look at Abram and he's just like Adam. He's a weak husband. Okay, Sarai's calling the shots. Furthermore, his wife comes up with a sinful plan that will have huge consequences, and he goes along with it. Eve disregarded God's word about not eating that fruit. She took it and she ate it anyway, and it wasn't enough for her to just make this her own rebellion. She took the fruit and gave the fruit to her husband. She had to include Adam, and God held Adam responsible. God held Adam responsible for this weakness. Again, Genesis 3.17, because you listened to the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground because of you. Well, here we are with the guy that signals God is going to start reversing the curse. And that guy does the same thing, which points to the fact that Abram's not the Savior. The Savior will come from him, but Abram is not the Savior. Okay, And so pretty much he, he listens, this guy who, who God's starting all these new things with, he listens to the voice of his wife when she's telling him to do something that disregards God's promise and God's moral standards. And it will bring consequences. Yet he goes along with it. And also, this comparison shows you just how they thought of Hagar. Sarai could take her and give her to Abram like Eve could take fruit. And give it to her husband as if she's been reduced down to a commodity. Okay? Eve takes a piece of fruit and gives it. Sarai does the same thing, but with a human being made in the image of God and treats her as a sex object for her husband. That's what's going on here. And this was not done so that Hagar could benefit and be raised up from her status of slave and have children. This was done only to benefit Sarai. She was the only one who sought to get a benefit out of this. Just like Eve thought disobeying God would make her wise. She was looking for a benefit. Sarai also, who gives and takes, gives something she's not supposed to have, or takes something she's not supposed to have, gives it to her husband. Okay, Eve thought it would make her wise. Sarai thought this would build her a family. Okay, And so she's treating this woman as her husband's object in order to build this family for herself. This is just all around bad. Right? That's why I have no problem saying this was a dumb plan. Okay, not just a bad plan. It's bad, but it's dumb on so many levels. <clears throat> and, and why would both of them, Sarah, Sarai and Abram, be so quick to agree on this plan? Look at the last part of verse 3. I think it gives us a hint. 
Otherwise, why else would this be here? It says this happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for 10 years. Okay, God first promised offspring and land 10 years ago. That's a long time for it to go unfulfilled. And I think that's why there's doubt now, because it's not happening quickly. And since they're not trusting God's timing, they're now contriving this man-made way to bring about the promise of offspring, as if God needs our help to fulfill the promise. Okay, in this plan, this was Sarai's way. Earlier, Abram came up with his plan. I'll just make Eleazar my heir. God's like, no, I'm going to give you a kid that will come from you. That's where it's going to happen. So Abram's like, all right, I'll go with your plan, God. But then years later, Sarai makes a plan, way worse. And Abram at this point must have his faith clouded with doubt because he goes along with it. And rather than leading her biblically, again, he agrees with this. This is definitely an outworking of Genesis 3.16, where as part of the curse, the wife will have a desire to dominate her husband and usurp the leadership. Some husbands let them do it. And and here's a big example of why that doesn't work out in the end. Now, husbands aren't supposed to be tyrants that, that dominate or rule. They're supposed to lovingly lead. Okay, that's how it's supposed to look. But it's certainly not supposed to be a, a switching of the roles like we're seeing here. And so truly, Abram's no better than Adam. But if that's not bad enough, Moses is not only comparing Abram to Adam. He's also telling us Abram's no better than the Pharaoh of chapter 12. Pharaoh had a harem to increase his offspring. Abram was willing to use Hagar the same way Pharaoh planned to use Abram's own wife. Okay, that's what's going on here. That's pretty bad. And and Moses wants us to even consider something else here. So he's as bad as Adam. He's as bad as Pharaoh. He's even as bad as somebody else in Genesis so far. Because when you look at the rest of the Old Testament, Slaves who become concubines don't get the word wife applied to them. Hagar gets the word wife applied to her. Verse 3 says, Sarai gave her to Abram as a wife. Genesis is the only place where that happens. And so what this means now is Abram is now participating in polygamy. Who is the only person in Genesis up to this point who's been mentioned to have been a polygamist? Anybody remember? Lamech, the very evil great-great-grandson of Cain. So Abram is as bad as Lamech here. Moses is pretty much saying, look, all the worst guys so far, he's acting just like them. Now, why is Moses trying to get us to to, to think of that, to think of Adam's failure along with the wickedness of Pharaoh and Lamech? It's because he's showing us that Abram, because of doubt, is not in a good place. In chapter 15, just a few verses ago, he was in a great place in terms of his faith. And we've only read three verses after that chapter, and it's as bad as it could get. He's like Adam, Pharaoh, and Lamech. Loved ones, this is what happens when we let our faith get clouded by doubt. We come up with some really foolish plans. And sadly, again, being a counselor, I've seen married couple after married couple, because of doubt, come up with very bad plans, and it blows up their marriage. I've seen single people who just can't wait on God's timing for things, then come up with their own plan, they take matters into their own hands, and the result then ends up a very complicated life for a single person to to be living in. The end result's always the same, right? And even myself, my own biggest failures as a Christian have been for the same reason. I become discontent with my present circumstance. I want God to act right now. And when he doesn't, I come up with my own dumb plan. Thomas calls them schemes. He's seen a lot of them. Okay, I'll come up with my own plan. And it never works. Never works. 
So maybe, just maybe after hearing this and reading this, all of us will stop doing this. <laughs> That's my hope, that we all stop doing this. So with that said, I told us earlier that the text gives us three reasons why faith clouded by doubt causes problems. The first reason is doubt tempts you to make really dumb plans. We've just seen that. The second reason flows out of that. The dumb plans then cause many problems. That's the second thing we're going to look at. So let's look at verses 4 through 6 to see the many problems that come from Abram and Sarai's foolish plan. Let's look at the first part of verse 4. It says, he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. Okay, so it looks like the plan is starting off the way they thought it would. But the next sentence is going to introduce the first problem. And there's quite a few problems here. Okay, look at the rest of verse 4. It says, when she, speaking of Hagar, when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Now, before explaining this any further, I think it's fair to say that Sarai did not think realistically about how this plan was going to play out. Like, for real. Did you really think that giving a younger woman to your man so that she could produce something that you can't produce, do you think that's going to make you more desired by your husband? Like, really? Do you think that's what's going to happen? And do you think that this slave woman, a woman who's stuck in the lowest possible social position, that she's not going to get ideas of competition if she's now able to provide for, the, for your husband what you can't? You think she's just going to stay humble? I mean, come on, like, like in what world is this going to play out like you think it is? And of course, you know, I say that and we're being kind of mean to Sarai. Well, I'm being kind of mean, but I think at the same time, we've all been there, right? Maybe not in this kind of way with this kind of situation, but we've been there. We conceive a plan because we doubt what God's word says, and then we somehow convince ourselves it's going to be different this time. And what normally happens isn't what's going to happen in my case. And then when people question us about it and say, hey, don't you see where this is going to lead? We could sound really convincing. We could convince ourselves. We could give 10 reasons why our particular case doesn't have the same danger as all the other ones. And then what happens every single time? It always blows up in our face, right? We always think it's going to end up different, just like Sarai did. But the real world's the real world. and It's always going to end up like what we're seeing here. The old adage, be careful what you wish for, is really good advice here for Sarai. You wished that your young slave girl would produce an heir for your husband. Well, she's pregnant. Now how does she look at you? Does she still see you as a mistress to respect? Nope. The text says, quote, her mistress became contemptible to her, end quote. Hagar started looking down on her mistress. Now, these words became contemptible to her should be understood, understood as she lorded it over her. Think about that. She's lording it over her lord, over her lordess, I guess. There's not a real word, but she's lording it over her lady, Um, to use the old British terminology. So anyhow, we don't know what she did or said, but it displayed an attitude that Sarai could not miss. It was an attitude that the roles have been switched. Now I'm the favored woman of Abram. I could provide what you, Sarai, my master, and all your years could not. Now I can. So I'm the new lady in town. Now, of course, this is going to cause envious jealousy in Sarai. It is, and it's going to cause arrogance in Hagar. That's what we're seeing. Both women are displaying some very petty, sinful attitudes and behaviors. Clearly, Sarai got more than she bargained for. 
This plan upset the social order of society and the social order of their family. Before they embarked on this plan, she and Abram were exclusively man and wife, and their servants were just servants. Now, Abram has another wife, which makes her a rival. Now, the servant is possibly displacing her master. Now, there's a child of Abram's own loins actually being added to, Adam's, or to Abram's household from this other woman. And that child has no relation to Sarai. None. So if Abram dies before she does, and this boy ends up the heir, what does that mean for Sarai? She's cut out. She's got no relation to this kid. Okay? This does not help Sarai at all. This plan only helps Hagar. So the first problem then that we see here is a broken and disturbed relationship between Sarai and Hagar. We could assume the relationship was not broken before this. Now there's jealousy and there's arrogance. And we are seeing the upending of the social order. Okay, This is such a big deal that there's a proverb about it. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 21 and 23, what's happening in Abram's house is considered earth-shattering, according to this proverb. Here's what it says. It says, the earth trembles under three things. It cannot bear up under four. A servant when he becomes a king, a fool when he is stuffed with food, an unloved woman when she marries, and a servant girl when she ousts her queen. Other translations will be a servant girl when she displaces her mistress, which is exactly what's happening here. So the fourth of these things that the earth cannot bear is exactly what is happening in the household of Abram. And so that is what Sarai recognizes is happening here. So that's the first problem. Sarai and Hagar's relationship and the upending of the social order is the first problem. The second problem is between Sarai and Abram. This now causes marital strife. Look at verse 5. It says this, Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Now sometimes, I, 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 like if I could just insert myself in this conversation, I'd be like, Sarai, did you hear yourself? <laughs> you know, your very words and you're blaming him. Now, he is blameworthy, but she's more blameworthy. This whole idea was her plan, okay? And it's blowing up in her face. And rather than taking personal responsibility, she does what Adam and Eve did. Remember, Adam and Eve blame shifted. They didn't take responsibility. She now blame shifts. Abram, this is all your fault. None of it's my fault. You are responsible for my suffering. May God judge between us. And by the way, I would be willing to bet my Israeli-made yarmulke that this kind of thing happens in marriages a lot where the wife dominates the husband. He's a pushover. He doesn't resist her demands or her plans. But when her plans blow up, she's very quick probably to blame him for not thinking in advance of the problems that the plan could cause. It's your job to think through this and make sure it doesn't end up this way. But it did. Why didn't you think of this ahead of time? And then he's thinking, because in the past, when I did, you just railroaded over me anyway. So I'm darned if I do, darned if I don't. That's why marriages like that don't work, right? It only creates disharmony. And it sounds like Sarah is doing the same thing. Again, she says, I put my slave in your arms. I mean, right there. <laughs> I put my slave in your arms. But in her mind, it's him that's wrong. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. It's like she's saying, Abram, you should have known this was going to happen, and you should have talked me out of this plan. 
The fact that you didn't, it's all your fault. And that is true. He should have talked her out of this plan. And the fact that he agreed with it, he's responsible. But she's still being a brat here. I think we could all agree on that. Okay. Now, going back to her invocation that God judge between us, I don't think she would really want this. Okay, both did wrong. They both are wrong. But we all intuitively know that the mastermind of a plan is more culpable than the follower. Even our legal systems, when you know you have a mastermind of a bank robbery and just the followers, who gets more time in the slammer? It's always the mastermind. Okay? So they're both culpable, but she's more culpable here. This, at this point, I would think. Okay, Abram, snap out of this. This would be a good chance for you to step up as a husband and and be a godly leader. And and this is what in the alternative universe we would hope that he would say, that he would say, you know what, you're right. I did wrong. We we both did wrong. But now we have to figure out what our life's going to look like. The fact is, she's now a wife too. You're the head wife, so you get more respect, but Hagar's now part of the family. And the baby in her womb is actually my child, my only child at this point. So we have to figure out a way that he's taken care of, and we can't separate him from his mother. So we need to figure out a way to apply justice the best that we can in this really messy scenario that we've created. It's messy. There's no easy answer, but we have to do the most right and the best we can in this messy scenario. I will tell Hagar, you're the head wife, so she needs to, uh, if she keeps lording it over you, there's going to be consequences, right? And that'll get her in line, and then we'll figure out a way to, to, to work this out. She'll still submit to you, but this is our family now. That's like really the best Abram could hope for, and that's the most biblical answer in this messy solution. And that's pretty much what God is going to, to do in the end. But that's not what we see Abram do, though. This isn't how he responds. Look at the first part of verse 6. Moses writes, Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Now, this is just pathetic. One commentator said he's faking neutrality here. And I think when you read it, you could sense it. I mean, like, what is this to me? I don't love her. He won't even say her name here. He doesn't say Hagar's in your power. He's like, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Now, this is so wrong for so many reasons. First, Abram now owes Hagar and that baby protection. Whether he signed up for that or not, and he did sign up for it, he now owes them protection. Hagar was treated like a commodity, like fruit from a tree. Now she's with child. Yes, her mouth did get her in trouble. She should not have been running her mouth against Sarai. But this pregnancy was not by her choice. It was by the choice of her her owners. And Abram is such a weak husband. He's so scared of his wife that he just says, do what you want to do, as if he's removing responsibility from himself. So that's the next problem, right, that their foolish plan caused. It revealed just how weak Abram as a husband is. And since owning the problem and dealing with the problem would take a lot of work, he opts for the lazy way out. Maybe he's thinking, you know what? Sarai will put Hagar in her place. Hagar will calm down. And then I don't have to do anything. I don't have to have a a hard conversation with either woman. I still keep both wives. I still have a kid on the way. And so by ignoring the problem, it's going to get a lot better. Guys, does that ever work? Does ignoring the problem make it go away? Not in the real world. (laughs) When you ignore a problem, it only gets worse. It's like ignoring cancer. It just spreads. 
Okay, and so this is exactly what happens here. Sarai now takes this permission from Abram and the power goes to her head and she acts like a tyrant. The rest of verse six says, then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Now I want you to think about that. It doesn't give us the details of the mistreatment, but it had to be bad. In that society, a slave had no safety net. Running from a master could carry the death penalty. Being a young woman with a child literally destroys all prospects of future marriage. So you're going to be stuck in poverty the rest of your life. And we're going to see later in the text that she's on her way back to Egypt. Her home country that thought so low of her that they gave her to foreigners as mere property. Yet, it tells you how bad she was being treated if she would rather go there. If she'd rather go back there, condemn the poverty, perpetual vulnerability, she'd rather that than live in a house full of wealth, having the status of wife, but being in the same house of Sarai. That's worse to her than being impoverished in Egypt for the rest of her life. That means Sarai, she she was being bad. We can only imagine how bad it was, but it had to be bad. So I just want us to understand that that is likely, this last part is likely the biggest problem of their foolish plan. Okay, jealousy and arrogance of the two women in the upended social order, that's problematic. Okay, marital strife between Abram and, and, and Sarai, that's problematic. A weak husband passing the buck is problematic. But now, with this fourth problem, Abram is losing his only child at this point. He's also losing a wife. And if, let's say, we just drop this to the most cynical level, he's also losing a slave, which has economic value. Either way, there's huge losses here. This is a net loss. Had they never came up with this plan, they'd still have the slave. But they did come up with the plan, okay? And they messed things up. If they responded to the messy situation in a responsible way, well, then they get to keep the wife. They get to keep the baby. It all is intact. But by responding to their failure with even more failure, they now introduce a problem where the entire thing is one massive loss. No child, no extra wife, no servant. They lose it all. It is all just loss, all loss at this point. And because of their sin, there was nothing they could do to fix these problems at this point. Hagar was gone. So just like in chapter 12, Abram lets things get to such a point, he can't fix it. Pharaoh's got his wife. And so God has to intervene to fix the problem. And we're going to see the same thing here. But before we get to that, I want us to reflect for a minute. When you doubt God, you make foolish plans. We all do. When you make foolish plans, you create more problems. And what the second part showed us is when you respond to those problems in even dumber ways, then your life is going to be one giant mess, like the family of Abram, okay? So you might be there right now. You might be thinking, man, so that's why I'm where I'm at. I've been doing this for a while now. Maybe you doubted God and did things differently than his word commanded. And so now you got a whole bunch of extra problems that stem from that. Now look, sometimes, and in counseling, what I tell you is let's try to reverse the course, step by step, and maybe we could get out of this. And a lot of times, when the course is reversed, the problems a lot of times will go away. Those are best case scenarios. But sometimes, like Abram, where in this case they're bringing uh, another child into the world and another woman into their marriage and stuff like that, your actions will create a situation where there's no going back to how things were before it. Sometimes that just happens, and you got to understand that. In those cases, you need to own your sin and be committed to doing whatever is right, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much it costs you, you have to do what is right, just, and best in your new complicated stage of life. You just have to, okay? 
What you don't want to do is what we see in our text. They keep piling on more sin. Eventually, so much damage will be done that even if they wanted to fix it now, they can't. And, and if you get to that point where it's unfixable, that's on you. You know, now it doesn't cost you your salvation, but you got to live with that consequence. And so it's no one else's fault. Now, in Abram's case, God is going to directly intervene. We're not always promised that in our cases, okay? God had set into motion plans to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and that plan required that he would take Abram, make him the father of a special nation called Israel, and through that nation bring us the Savior, Jesus Christ. So because that's God's plan, he's not going to let Abram mess it up, okay? So God is going to intervene, okay? God's going to set things right. And the good news is, just like we saw after chapter 12, Abram tends to grow and mature after these big mistakes. And the same thing with us. We can mess up, but if we start following the word, we can grow and we can mature. Sometimes God will intervene for us. Whether he does or doesn't, though, just understand, he means for the failures of your life, for you to repent and for you to grow. Sometimes you will live with that lifelong consequence, especially if you keep doubling down. So, Word to the wise, don't double down. It only makes the problem worse. Well, anyway, as I said at the beginning, the point of the text is faith clouded by doubt always causes problems. The text gives us reasons. We come up with dumb plans. Our dumb plans cause many problems. And now thirdly, let's look at the fact that sometimes only divine intervention could overcome these problems. That's what we will see in the rest of the text. In verse 7, we see that God seeks out Hagar. Even though they all messed up, God is in the business of working out our evil for his good purposes. And that's good news. If you've, if you've messed up and you're in a messed up situation now, he's still going to work it for good, especially if you belong to him. So don't lose hope. Don't beat yourself up too much. He's going to work it out for good. And we see him do that here. Look at verse 7. It says this, it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, Shur is the most southernmost boundary of Canaan, so she was already almost back to Egypt. That is no easy journey for a lone pregnant woman, but that's how far she made it. And God's messenger appears to her. He's going to appear in a visible form, and she's going to be able to hear him. She will see him and hear him. Now, I'm just telling you now, I think as the text moves on, it's going to become obvious this is a theophany. What's that? Well, that's one of those $100 words that we theologians like to use. It just means when God appears in a physical form to someone, okay? If God appeared as he is with his glory, you would explode, okay? So sometimes God will appear in a physical form that veils his glory so that you don't explode, but he could still appear and have a conversation with you. That's a theophany, and that's what we're we're going to see happening here. So anyway, God finds her here at Shur. Verse 8 continues the narrative. It says, he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. Now, I can imagine Hagar here, a lone pregnant woman, all by herself. This person appears to her and he knows her name, Hagar, and he knows she's a slave of Sarai. And so if he already knows that, he knows the answer to his question, where did you come from and where are you going? He already knows that. So why would he ask? Well, it's the same thing that God did with Adam. You know, Adam, where are you? I was hiding because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? You don't think God knew the answer to that? Or, Or Cain, where's your brother? 
Am I my brother's keeper? You know? And so the point is, God knows the answer to these questions. He asks the questions to reveal to we, the readers, and also the person he's talking to, the condition of their heart. He's talking. So in this case, what's interesting is Hagar's very honest here. Adam lied and then blame shifted. Cain lied and then tried to change the subject. Hagar just lets it out. Look, this guy knows my name. He knows my mistress. So what's the point of lying? She's like, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. You know, and so very honest here. Well, because God means to fix the problem, he's going to give her the solution. He's not going to let it slide. Look at verse 9. Moses tells us this. It says, the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. That's how you fix this problem. Go back and submit. Now, that might not be what Hagar wanted to hear, but it was God's will. And I could tell you in in the biblical counseling room, when you point out people what the Bible actually says they have to do to fix their problem, it's rarely what they want to hear. They're hoping that you could do like a little cross sign and all their problems go away. They won't say that, but that's what they're hoping. You say, you open up the Bible and you say, no, this is what you got to do. They're like, uh, it's like this. It'd be like Hagar hearing this way. I got to go back to Sarai. I got to submit. But that's God's will. That's the only solution to her problem. Sarai may have been jealous because of the pregnancy alone, but the humiliation was caused by the slave lording it over her. When you lord it over someone, when you hold them in contempt, meaning you treat them like they are nothing, you are not submitting to them, okay? And you are just going to make an enemy out of them, that's for sure. At the end of the day, he's saying, Sarah or Hagar, Sarah is still your mistress, And in the house of Abram, she is the main wife. So, Hagar, you have to accept that. You can't upend the social order here. That's not what what God's calling her to do. So you need to go back and treat your mistress like you used to. You need to submit to her authority, and she will probably stop abusing you. That, That will solve that problem. So that's the solution. Now, of course, the thought of going back after everything that that happened would be scary. And so she's going to be reassured in verse 10. He makes a promise. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. That sounds like what he said to Abram. And, and, And I think at this point, it becomes clear this is no mere angel because what angel says, I will multiply your offspring? Only God says, I will give you offspring that you can't count. Angels have no power over that. And so let me talk about this real quick, because some people get confused by the word, the angel of the Lord. Like if he's an angel, how could he be the Lord? Don't let that confuse you. In the Old Testament, you have, especially in the narratives, you have this being called the angel of the Lord, but he speaks as if he's the Lord. People worship him as if he's the Lord. Angels don't receive worship. This guy does, right? And then after he leaves, people be like, we saw God and we're not dead. Wow. Right? And so people recognize he's the Lord. So you might be like, well, why does it call him angel? In Hebrew, the word angel, malach, um, yeah, malach, is just messenger, just like it is in the Greek. It's just messenger. Now, God can be his own messenger, right? And there's two ways that somebody could be a malach or a messenger. A messenger could be a representative of God. In that case, it would be an angel. They are coming to represent God. Or the malach could be a representation of God. A representation of God means God is his own messenger and he's appearing in a physical form as a representation of himself because he can't appear as himself without them dying, okay? And so pretty much that is what's happening here. God is his own representation or messenger here, okay? He's veiling his glory. And so 
When the Lord appears as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and it's clear that it's God, people often debate which person of the Trinity is this. In the Old Testament, it won't tell us, right? So there's going to be debate. My opinion, for what it's worth, is it is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. And the reason I say that is because the New Testament tells us Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. Now, of course, you could say, well, that's after the incarnation. That's true. But it does make sense if that's how he is on this side of the covenant, right, that that's how he would have always been. He would be the one who is the visible appearance of the Lord. Another little thing to keep in mind is after Jesus takes on flesh, in the womb of Mary, you never see the angel of the Lord again. So I think for those reasons, we're probably seeing what's called, here's another $100 word, no, a $200 word, a Christophany. Okay, so you got the theophany, God appearing in a physical form. A Christophany is Jesus, before he took on flesh, still appearing in a type of physical form. I think it's a Christophany. I think it's Christ speaking with Hagar. But at the end of the day, What's interesting is Hagar recognizes it's no mere angel. She knows she's talking to God. And as I said, God is making a promise here that's very similar to the one he made to Abram. From this one child, there will be descendants, too many to count. Now, you might be thinking, oh, well, that sounds like what he said in the last chapter. Maybe this is the child of promise. In the next chapter, chapter 17, God's going to say, no. It's not coming from this one. It will be a different one. It will be from uh, Isaac, you know. And and what's interesting, though, is this one is being made as a parallel, kind of like Bizarro Nation. I don't know any other way to put it. Okay, Ishmael's going to have 12 tribes. Jacob's going to have 12 tribes. But Jacob's the one of promise, not Ishmael. But historically, they both speak very similar languages, Hebrew and Arabic. And so it's just interesting. But the point is, with this promise, Hagar's being reassured here. The next chapter will tell us more. Um, especially about the, the real child of promise, the one through whom Abram will have descendants as numerous as the stars. Now, in verse 11, the Lord continues. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. Now, what's interesting about this is later in the biblical timeline, there's going to be another woman being abused by a rival wife, and she will pray to the Lord to give her a child. That woman's name is Hannah, and she names her son Samuel, or in Hebrew, Shmuel. Both Shmuel and Ishmael in Hebrew, even though they're different words, they both mean the same thing, the Lord heard. The Lord heard. So it's just kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, biblical theologians think we're supposed to make the connection. The difference is Samuel's going to be a blessing to God's people. Ishmael, not so much, at least not back then. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. Now, listen. Calling someone a donkey back then meant the exact same thing it means today. Scholars assure us of that. It's not like this was a a good thing back then. So God's telling her, and I don't say this to be crass, God's saying he's going to be a real jackass. You know, he's going to get on everyone's nerves, and because of that, they're going to get on his nerves, and rather than moving away from them, he's going to live right next to them and keep getting on their nerves, okay? But... The good news is, even though that's the history of the Ishmaelites, God means to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, 
And so, again, God is going to work this for good because now that we're on the other side of Christ coming, there are multitudes of Ishmaelites who've called on the name of the Lord who are now not a hindrance or annoyance to their brothers, but they are a blessing. And they will be a blessing to us for all eternity and will be a blessing to them. Isn't it amazing how God brings back harmony and fixes things that are broken? But at first, and and until the, the time Christ returns, some of these guys are just going to be punks. And we see that. Now, Hagar, with all that, even though this nation is going to be a donkey, um, she's still encouraged by God's words overall. Look at verse 13. It says, So she named the Lord who spoke with her, You are El Roy. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me? Now, this is very interesting. It says she named the Lord. And by the way, it makes it clear that this is God because the word Lord is Yahweh in the Hebrew. And it tells us she gave him a name. She named God El Roy, which means God sees me. Now, you might not think anything of that, but let me tell you something. This is the only time in the entire Bible where a human gives a name to God. Humans never name God. God is the one who reveals his names and attributes. God names us. We don't name him. And yet God allowed this young woman, this pregnant Egyptian slave, to give him a name. Why? Well, I think her heart behind it isn't bad, right? I, I think she's, she's, what she's saying is right here. She's not claiming authority over God. She's not being presumptuous. She's like, Hey, you're the God who sees me. You're Elroy. Can it be that my eyes are now seeing the one who always faithfully is watching over me? It's, it's a very sweet thing, I think. You know, if anybody wants to get choked up, <clears throat> never happened to me a day in my life. But here you have this woman. She has this mistress who's pretty mean to her all the time and only saw her as a problem. There's a God who sees her all the time. It's the God of Abram. It's the God of her mistress as well. And that God watches her, and he doesn't see her as a problem. In her lowest and most vulnerable moment, he lets her see him. Abram and Sarai, since they're the ones messing up so bad here, God doesn't show himself to them in this scenario, only to her. And then later on, she's going to get sent away again, and she's going to be vulnerable again, and God will reveal himself to her again. God, for some reason, takes special care of this woman, and I think it shows us something of his goodness. And then she recognizes that goodness and tenderly gives him a name, Uriel Roy. So, I don't know. I just like what I'm reading there. It's a nice little happy moment in an otherwise really bad chapter. But anyway, finishing up, Moses gives us a little side note. Because of this event, um, this well that's in Shur got a name. In verse 14, it says, That is why the well is called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. And so Be'er Lahai Roy means the well of the living one who sees me. It got that name from this account. In verses 15 and 16, we then see that she obeys God. And the problem is now solved. It says, So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So the story ends with Hagar back in Abram's house, submitting to Sarai. Now Abram has his main wife, Sarai, as well as Hagar, and as well as the son that is born to him. And he names him exactly what God commanded Hagar, Ishmael. Now, although this scenario is going to make life in his house complex, 
This was the best way they could manage their lives with some sorts of faithfulness after that initial mistake. That's what I said early on. That's exactly what God brings as the solution. Okay? Abram and Sarai wouldn't do it, so God intervened and brought it to that point. And now there's a harmony again. Now, one thing that's interesting here is in these last two verses, it names Hagar a lot, doesn't name Sarai once. It, Moses intentionally leaves her out in all these final verses. Why would he do that? He's making it clear that Sarai's plan to build her own house through Hagar is unfulfilled. This baby is only being attached to Hagar. This baby's not being attached to Sarai. Now, you might be thinking, what, is God done with Sarai? No, God's got something better for her. That's why he's making it clear this is just Hagar's baby, okay? God, just because we mess up doesn't mean we lose the promises. The promise rests on God alone. That's what chapter 15 was about. So our chapter shows us what happens when you doubt and take matters in your own hands. When you do that, it ends on a sad note for Sarai, but it doesn't stay there. The very next chapter, the next one that we're going to do, it's huge. The child of promise is going to be Isaac, and he's going to come from Sarai. She will have her own kid, and it will be the promised, uh, the promised child, the heir. Okay, And so between the promise of chapter 15 and the fulfillment that's going to come in later chapters, you see the biggest failure possible, and yet what do you see in the midst of that? God still keeps his promise. Loved ones, that's good news. Bible commentator Kurt Strasner rightly points out this. He says, you see Abram's faithfulness in chapter 15, and you're like, that's right, Abram believed God. But then you see his failure in chapter 16, and you're like, Abram believed God? You know, I mean, it it was was well put. But here's the thing. Don't miss the point. Abram's like us, unpredictable. One minute faithful, the next minute a failure. But there's one constant in all of this, and what's the constant? God. God. We, like Abram, we are called people of faith, not because our faith and trust never wavers, but instead we're called people of faith because God, the object of our faith, never ever wavers. That is why we are called people of faith. Listen, this might sound heretical at first, but hear me out. It's not faith that saves. It's faith in the right object that saves. You could have the strongest faith imaginable in the tooth fairy and it's useless, but you could have a weak faith in the living God and it'll save you, okay? So it's not the strength of your faith, it's the strength of the object of your faith, God, who's infinitely strong. Now, the strength of your faith will, in many ways, dictate the faithfulness of your life, okay? So we're to ever be increasing in our faith, but again, it's God, the object of our faith. It's Jesus Christ. That's where the salvation comes, faith through him, right, in him. So this chapter reminds us then that a person can still be saved and really blow it. Sometimes we think somebody sins so bad, all oh, they can't be saved. Don't necessarily go there. Abram blew it really bad and was still saved, okay? Now, when people mess up, they're gonna answer for their failures, but this chapter reminds us that our salvation rests not on our performance, but on God's promise. God promises that he will never leave us, never forsake us. Never. All of God's promises are a yes in Jesus Christ, are they not? And so Abram acted just like Adam. That lets us know Abram can't be the Savior, but the Savior would come from Abram's loins. And he did. And it's because Christ never wavered. Christ never failed to trust the Father perfectly, and therefore Christ never failed to obey. It's because of his perfect faithfulness that we are saved, despite the fact that at times we let doubt cloud our faith, which then leads to problems like this. So loved ones, 
At the end of all this, take confidence in Christ and his finished work. Live in light of that, but also learn the lessons from this chapter. Many of our problems are self-inflicted because we doubt. So what should we do? Stop doubting and believe. Is that not what Jesus tells his disciples all the time? Cling to all the promises of God with everything you got. And know that when you fail, you have an advocate before the Father who intercedes just for you. That's the good news with all this. Now, if there's any unbeliever here, listen, you don't have an advocate before the Father. You are literally guilty of all of your sins, and you will stand before God, who is a holy judge in an all-consuming fire. But the good news is that Christ came and died in the place of sinners to take our penalty, and then he lived that perfect righteous life, that faithful life, so we could get the credit of that faithfulness. See, we're saved by faith in Christ. We're saved by grace through faith in the object of God, Christ, Holy Spirit, and the work of Christ. Okay, we're saved through that faith, but what saves us is the faithfulness of Christ. So you literally have to turn away from your sin, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Okay, and then don't doubt. <laughs> don't let faith cloud your doubt, but when it does, know that Jesus has got your back. And so, if you have any questions about this, uh, come uh, talk to, to me or any of the leaders, and we'll gladly walk you through this. What we're going to do is pray, and then you'll be dismissed. Lord God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that you do not pull back and hide the moral failures of the heroes of the Bible. Lord, you show us that they were real people just like us, that mess up just like us. And you do that to show us that there's only one Savior, and that Savior is greater than our worst failures. That Jesus, your goodness and your grace is bigger than the worst thing we could do, the worst stumbling we can make. And so we thank you for the salvation by grace through faith. But Lord, we also know you have called us to live holy and righteous lives and not to make mistakes and blunders like this. And so Lord, may we increasingly come to your word, be conformed to Christ by your word and walk in a manner that's pleasing to you, Lord. And may we take uh, solace and rest in the fact that even when we mess up, we are still saved by your grace because you are such a good and merciful God. We love you, God. We pray if there's anybody that doesn't know you, you save them today. And uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this. Amen. All right. Well, thanks for uh, coming out and enduring that. And you are dismissed. <laughs>